close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 134, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. How are you, Paul? I'm all right. We're doing well. The sun is out. The sky is blue. It's beautiful. And so are you. Wow. I don't, I don't even know where to go with that. We're done. We, 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 we won podcasting. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. This end of the ghost story, guys. I felt yes. a, mo- a flicker of joy. I'd forgotten what that was like. <laughs> Spring is in the air. It's uh, all good here, my friend. And you saw someone wrestle a giant heart. I did. Yes. I went to my first gig in three years and uh, we weren't expecting the support act. Who was the support act? We would go- we were told it would be somebody else. Okay. Um, and then it turned out to be uh, a 144-year-old Irish zombie vampire called Craven. Um, okay. Who uh, absolutely blew us away to the point that me and my friend, after his set, went and bought his album and had a chat with him, and he was a very nice guy. I was going to say, I saw a picture of you with this guy, and I thought, I don't know who this is, but Paul looks very happy, so he must be good. <laughs> yes, I'd literally just fallen over before that picture was taken, because uh, I decided not to look out for a step. But uh, he was very nice, um, especially after he'd cut his tongue off during his set as well, and and um, threw, a, threw a, uh, a blood-soaked baby into the audience and things. So yes, it was, it was very entertaining. I forgot what it was like to have fun in that no kind of kidding. environment. So yes, and I wasn't the oldest person at the gig, which was amazing. <laughs> that was a vampire, being 144. <laughs> no, 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 no. There was some, some older gentlemen lurking around the back, which meant they may have been vampires. Who knows? They certainly didn't dress like it. But... Um, Yes, it was it was great fun, and obviously the the, the main act priest who were from Sweden uh, were oh, excellent, yeah. really good. Oh, that is cool, man. I I've not been back to a gig yet, but I'm hoping to get there soon. I just nothing has come through that has sort of made me want to climb out of my my cave just yet. But hopefully, hopefully soon. I'm I'm watching back watching movies. I figure that's a start. Well, Def Leppard are touring Canada soon. Get out there. Yeah, I can probably wait a little while longer. <laughs> well, Def Leppard and Motley Crue. How can you say no to that? Wow, that got easier, actually. <laughs> Sheffield's finest on tour. Get there. Oh, boy. Sheffield's done better than that. Oh. That's right, Def Leppard. I'm coming for you. <laughs> as for me, I, as you can hear, as we discussed off air, my voice is still a little wonky. My, the uh, cherry blossoms are coming out in my neighborhood, and they're beautiful, but they're also uh, full of pollen, and it has been a goddamn nightmare. So- <laughs> As you hear me tell stories of the hat man on tonight's show, I will sound also a little bit like a buzzsaw. So I beg your indulgence, dear audience. (laughs) Um, Apart from that, I'm good. As you know, and as I've said on social media, last episode, I said that my book, A Strange Little Place, was out of print and Llewellyn had reverted, sent all sort of returned the rights to me. And now I can say that Strange Little Place is coming back into print in a revised, expanded second edition probably in the fall from Beyond the Fray Publishing. So I'm very, very excited for that. Uh, again, my not sure, we don't know exactly when yet, but it'll have more information, more stories, 
going to, again, going to expand the focus a little bit. I'm really excited to have a second chance because I, obviously that was the first thing I'd really written of any length. Frankly, I, I'm not very pleased with how it's, how it reads now. You know, I'm a much better writer than I was at the time. So I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting that. And of course it was you who suggested it. So I, I, again, I have to say thank you. I do have good ideas occasionally. More than occasionally, I would venture <laughs> to say. I mean, you still ended up on the call with me. So not all your decisions have gone well, but. <laughs> well, it's Easter. It's the time of miracles. There we go. <laughs> Speaking of miracles, I also landed my first ever paid voice gig uh, for a video game. And of course I landed it literally the day before my, my voice went completely. <laughs> and so I had about, I, I think I got it Thursday night and I told them I would have it to them by Sunday. And it was, it's not much. It's like 20 lines plus seven random like character interactions. And, uh, of course they, yeah, my voice went and I thought, fuck. Okay. So thankfully I managed to baby it back to the point where I could, uh, do what they needed me to do. And I sent them all in. I kind of crossed my fingers. And I said, look guys, I lost my voice literally the day after you gave me the job. Uh, I did what I could. Hopefully you know, the, the nature of the role is such that sounding a little more gravelly is not necessarily a bad thing. So let me know if, it, if it's a problem, I can re-record it. They like it. So, uh, I, I don't know when that's coming out, but it's on, there is a listing for it on steam. I'm not going to say what it is yet, but, uh, yes, my first ever voice acting gig. And that's pretty cool. Excellent. Well done you. Thank you, sir. And yeah, so that's things are, things are actually good. I I'm, I'm in a good place, which has been not the case for a while now. So this is kind of nice. It's, it's nice to have a moment of, uh, of yeah, of peace. Um, although I say peace, there's a major demolition project happening directly across the street from my apartment. So every morning at first light, I'm woken up to what sounds like the world ending. So, you know, balance in all things. Yes. I'm enjoying the calm where I live at the moment because as the weather improves, then obviously that will mean that knobheads will think the best thing to do on Saturday night at midnight is to play music very loud and let off fireworks. I mean, I got, they got to do something when they're not stabbing each other, Paul. They need to keep occupied. No, these are, these are, uh, these are trendy people. So they, they, they don't, they look down on such things, but what they do is, is perfectly fine. Oh God. So even Sheffield has hipsters. Oh, very much so, especially near where I live. Yes, yes. I remember last summer, uh, it was about half 12 at night. I was thinking, where's that coming from? I could just do the boom, 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 boom. So I like, oh. went onto the balcony and there was some, some hipsters in the <laughs> park. Boom. And they'd, all, they, they'd got head torches on. And you can kind of gauge their age as well because they were listening to Underworld, Born Slippy. So they're obviously about <laughs> the same age as me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, they're our age. Okay. Yeah, so I can look down on these people. Literally and figuratively. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> I know how bad they got after their first three albums. But that's a story for another day. And they were just like, woo, at like one o'clock in the morning. So, uh, you know, there would be lots of middle-aged people very uh, hungover the following morning, I suspect, that night. What we've got to do is figure out some way to get the stabby people together with the firecrackery people. And I think this is a problem that solves itself. Yeah, I'm just thinking about getting a laser-sighted air rifle for this summer, actually. <laughs> Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a sure sharp shot on the arse tends to send people out. Well, this seems like a strange way to transition back to talking about the Shadow Man, the Hat Man, but uh, it's going to be a great episode. This, <laughs> this one was Anthony's baby. He, was, he has been working on this one for a while, so I'm excited to get to those stories. But before we do, 
have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you're the Darren Emerson to our underworld, which is to say without you, we would not be nearly as good. <laughs> and of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we'd especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are Heather Copeland, Sam Morgan Russell, Teresa Lynn Blair, Mary Lynn Streamer, Juna B, Donna P, Andrew, John Anthony, Generic Bob, Alpha Big Bad Wolf, and Donna Newton. Guys, thank you so, so, so much. You make the show possible. Truly, without you guys, it wouldn't be a show. And so we appreciate you from the bottom of our terrible, terrible hearts. We'll wait till the end of the show to tell you about all the cool shit you get being a patron. But I will say, for as little as a dollar a month, you get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't like that? Ads suck. To find out more, head on over to patreon.com slash ghost story guys. Now we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Tales of the Hat Man. Welcome back. As we said before the break, on this episode, we're telling stories about that very specific kind of shadow person sighting, that of the hat man. And of course, if you don't know, the hat man is, it's a shadow figure, generally speaking, seen to be wearing what appears to be a long duster or trench coat or a long coat of some kind. And a, a, a hat that's been kind of described as like a sort of a Baba Duke-esque top hat or a kind of fedora always in shadow. I mean, you should always be afraid of people wearing fedoras, but especially when they're entirely cast in shadow and often described, I've heard them described with red eyes, Paul, as well. How about you? Yep. 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 It's, it's a very interesting thing because my most recent episode with, with Malcolm Robinson, we've actually dived into this because he's currently investigating a case where part of the phenomenon is the hat man. Oh, interesting. So I haven't got to that part of the show yet. I'll have to, uh, have to get on that. What has been his findings thus far? Um, it's very intriguing because part of what we were talking about is that I think for a lot of us here in the UK, we tend to view the Hatman phenomenon as more based in North America, but he's pulled some cases together from around the UK. So he's, he's got a, a, a handful of cases that he's uncovered whilst working on this particular case, which is a currently ongoing investigation in Ireland. Oh, fascinating. You know, it never occurred to me that it was a North American phenomenon. That's, I, 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 but I guess you're right. I mean, all the stories we have today are, I believe, North American stories. Mm. Mm. It is strange because it's one of those things that if you'd have asked me five years ago, I'd have said it was a modern phenomenon right. for a variety of reasons. However, because I'm still having a deep dive into the world of Art Bell, I was listening to an episode the other day from 1997 and they were talking about the hat man. Fascinating. So he's been around, he's been around a while. Mm. What's interesting to me about Hatman, and, and this will come up in our stories, particularly in the last set of stories that we're going out on, is he's not always viewed as a negative figure. He's not always considered scary, but by and large, his appearances are not happy ones. And there's some, the, the stories that we're going to be sharing here shortly, there's some really interesting points, some stuff that come, that came up as I was reading them. And I thought, geez, there's a whole world here, you know, that put me in mind of a few things, but I'm, I'm going to wait till we actually read the stories to talk about it. Before we get there, though, we have some emails, some responses to our most recent shows, and we wanted to share those with you guys. 
Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. So our first email is from Jean. And Jean is a patron of ours. She said, I've had experiences, feelings, prescient dreams, and glimpses of movement at the edges of my vision in past. But none of them have given me such a bad feeling as this one did. Some locations are unnerving too, and I can't wait to leave the areas, but this was in my house, my family room, and I can't leave. I usually watch TV or read quietly by myself after my husband has gone to bed with only occasional interruptions from my cat or my son. This was the evening of January 1st, which was just another quiet evening. I was watching TV and thought I heard my son say, Mom. I turned my head to the right to look at him and saw a brilliant, shimmering white figure lounging full length on the sofa across the room. He, I felt that it was male, had a wide, reddish-pink mouth that was moving as if it was talking, but there was no sound. I was shocked and quickly stood up. At that moment, the figure just winked out. I then looked for my son, but he wasn't there and later said he hadn't been in the room all evening. Whatever this figure was has left me with an awful feeling. I often glance over to the sofa, half expecting and dreading that it will happen again. And we've, we've heard about like glowing white figures on the show before, but I've never heard about a figure that's um, got like a kind of weird, wide, reddish pink mouth. Hmm. Sounds a bit disturbing, that. Yeah. Um, Gene, that's, uh, keep us updated. Let us know if anything else happens. I mean, the, there's a mimic quality to that that's un- unsettling. You know, I, I was telling you off air that I, I recently watched this um, Russian horror flick called The Ice Demon. Yeah, you were saying how brilliant it is. Oh, wonderful film. Yeah. Um, but the, the opening scene truly is, the opening scene is very effective and establishes an unreasonable set of expectations for the rest of the film, but, uh, it involves mimicry and it was just a great reminder that that is one of the most truly frightening kinds of phenomenon we've ever talked about in the show. This idea that something can pretend at least for a while to look or sound like someone you love. Mm. It's weird as well, because obviously there's a vocalization to get your attention, but then it can't communicate again, which, which is fascinating really that, well, why, why does it, why does it do that? Because you, you're just considering, well, why can't it communicate further? I mean, to be honest, you might not want to hear what it's trying to say to you anyway. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Might be for the best. <clears throat> if my steady diet of horror films has taught me anything, it's that that thing is not going to say anything you want to hear. Our next piece of correspondence is from Ruth. In college, I had a course around Merlin Stone's book. When God Was a Woman, and other goddess legends. One of the goddesses from Ireland was called the Morrigan, also called the Raven Queen. She was the goddess of war and fate. In the form of a beautiful woman dressed in red, she would have sex with warriors on the way to battle to give them victory. Refuse her and she would curse them, and a raven would hover over them as an omen. In the form of an old woman, accompanied by a murder of crows, she would be seen at the water's edge, washing bloody clothes to predict failure and death. So thank you, Ruth. And you know, it's interesting how many people we've heard from regarding that. Uh, I think originally it was a story from Fiona, which she heard in Burra, Australia about the, the woman with the birds around her. So it really seems like that is just, it's a thing, you know, mm. we, we kind of talked about how, like we hadn't heard any specific mention in ghost lore, but it just seems like in, in general folklore and mythology, that's, that's just a given thing. So it really, really raises some questions. Absolutely. As soon as I was reading that and I saw the word Morrigan, I knew exactly what it would be referring to. And I think perhaps when we're dealing with the paranormal, we don't look to parallels in folklore and mythology. I would be very unsurprised if there aren't other 
examples from other cultures, especially in Europe, of that kind of thing, especially, I would imagine, in Germanic and Norse. Our final piece of correspondence before we get on in the stories is from Sam. And Sam says, Connor's story about the sunflower field from this week's episode reminded me of a similar experience I had when I was younger. I would visit my great uncle Gene in the summers. He and my aunt Betty lived in a house he built himself on the outskirts of a tiny Appalachian town in Kentucky. His house was very rural. Water was from the well, electricity from a generator, wood stove for heat, no TV, no phone line. This was like 1999, well before cell phones were widespread here. It was completely off the grid. There was a dollar general in town, but Gene and Betty mostly grew, canned, and hunted their own food. As an adult, I learned that when he came back from Vietnam, he decided he was done with humanity and became a hermit in the woods. Well, that's fair. I loved it there. I would basically become feral. No shoes, no supervision, no baths, sticks in my hair, a well and truly wild child. That sounds pretty great. I'd run around all day in the woods surrounding the house and play in the creek. I was little. I'd say five to six years old at the time the story takes place. One day I was doing my usual stuff, catching crawdads in the creek, trying to sneak up and pet a rabbit, hitting trees with big sticks, making flower crowns and bracelets out of clover and dandelions. This sounds amazing. And I found this super pretty meadow with all kinds of purple and pink flowers. The meadow was shady, but not dark, just cooler than the 90-something heat in the sun. There was a blue cast to the tall grass, and it was so, so, so soft. So I sat down in the middle and was playing when I must have fallen asleep. I woke up at dusk and wandered back to the house for dinner. I went back to that meadow a couple times that summer and some following summers. But when I asked my Aunt Betty about it when I was a teen, she looked at me like I was crazy. Jean had passed away by that point. So I went to look for it. And I looked a couple more times in my later teens and early 20s. I'm 29 now. I've never found it. I did find a pot field, though. Careful, <laughs> <both>. Careful there. <laughs> I have a story about a guy who found a pot field that was not his, and uh, it ended with a shotgun being poked in his face. And I knew that land very well. That was my story, by the way, listeners. That was not Sam's. Sam keeps better company than I do. And I knew that land very well. I know where it should be, but it's not there. I came to the conclusion a while ago that the meadow doesn't exist in a way I can access as an adult. It's sort of sad because it was so beautiful and such a happy place for me. Knowing what I know now, I do wonder if I was wandering through the good folks realm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Man, Sam, you know, more and more, the more I hear these stories, the more I have to I have to acknowledge that that may be possible. That may be something which is happening. And what's really interesting too is that your age in that story is the same as the age of the people in several of the stories we're going to be telling. A lot of these stories happen when these people were five years old, six years old. There's something about that time of life that seems to allow a certain kind of maybe mindset that just permits these things to become more possible. I mean, the fact that the grass was so soft, I mean, I told the story on that episode, but when my uncle had his heart stopped on the operating table, as, as I mentioned, he talked about being in a field full of flowers and he said the flowers were very soft. Everything felt, everything that he touched felt very soft and he was surrounded by people, but he couldn't see their faces. And so that, I, I don't know, that feels too close to be a coincidence. What do you think, Paul? It resonated with me because I've got a memory of something to do with someone finding a field of blue grass. Interesting. And it seems like it's like a dreamlike moment, but they are, they've been walking and they come across a field of blue grass and I can't place it, but I've certainly come across something similar in the past, but it is interesting. I mean, especially when you were talking about the ages of some of the people who are having these experiences, obviously a child's field of vision is far 
wider than an adult's. And as you develop into your teens, your, your vision narrows. So you lose your ability to see things on, on either end of the spectrum, which is often one of the things I believe, which allows children to be able to see certain things that adults say aren't there because. Oh, so you mean physically just in terms of actual visual acumen? Mm, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you, most kids lose it all by the time they're 13 and then you just get your vision. Fascinating. Man, we get shitty as we get older. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's one of those faculties and, and little foibles about things like that where, you know, when, when we, we were talking about imaginary friends, obviously kids can see a bigger spectrum of light at that age. So who's to say they aren't actually seeing things and us silly adults just can't see what they can. I mean, this is almost more than that though, because this isn't just seeing, this is going to a place mm -hmm. that other people can't go. Yeah. There's something to that. And that's something, as I've said before, I've always been obsessed with that and I don't necessarily know why, but I've always gravitated towards books where that's possible. Of course, the film Midnight Special, uh, if you, have you seen Midnight Special with Michael no. Shannon? Mm. So I, I, I won't say anymore. I don't want to give it away, but the idea of parallel worlds does come up in that film. And there is something about that that resonates with me. And, and again, could just be, I'm interested in it. You know, maybe I'm just a big old nerd. I mean, we know that I am a big old nerd, <laughs> but I do sometimes wonder if there's something else to it. And I wonder, you know, if, if there's some idea to this, this sort of suffer the children concept, you know, this idea that there is a, you know, you must be this innocent in order to ride the bus. You know, if there's something about you that allows you to pass through, you know, if there are membranes that separate one place from another. Maybe there's something about kids that, that allow that to happen. I don't know, but it's mm. fascinating stuff. And if anyone out there, if you have a story like this, even one you think, ah, that can't be possible, write in and let us know. Ghoststoryguys.gmail.com. We would love to hear about it. I especially would love to hear about it because like I said, I'm, I'm fascinated by this. It's just something that has interested me throughout my entire life. And one last thing before we jump to the stories, like I said at the top of the show, the Hatman episode, this is something Anthony put together. And, uh, we've been sort of working around to it. And what's really interesting about it, in addition to just the great stories he found is that he put the first batch of stories together in March of last year. And then I believe it was maybe within a week of that, he came from where he's living now in Northern BC, he came to Vancouver Island. And I want to say the day after he left or the day after he arrived here, his wife, Krista, who is, I believe a listener to the show. Hi, Krista. She <laughs> observed the hat man in their home. Mm. But she did not know Anthony had been doing this research. If I'm not mistaken, he was standing in the kitchen in the evening one night. She observed this, this, this thing standing there. And I, it's been, again, it's been a year. I can't remember the whole story, but it's almost like there's a summoning involved in a way. Mm. So as we go through these stories, let's hope that, uh, well, let's, let's hope we're not summoning anything. What's that? <laughs> I'm dealing with a haunted chessboard at the minute. So anything's possible here. Well, now you got to tell me more. We can't just go to the stories on that. I must know. <laughs> well, apparently the, the other day, Julie was just sat in the front room and one of the pawns decided to throw itself off the chessboard. Oh. Perfectly flat. They're made of marble as well. So they're not, no, they're not light things. Um, and it just threw itself off the chessboard onto the floor. Okay, then. Watch this space, listeners. Clearly the, uh, the smoking ghost likes to play chess now. You have a poltergeist. Poltergeist. <laughs> okay. That's better. That's better. 
<laughs> and now, on with the stories. The Shadow Behind the Light When I was just a little kid, my older sister and I would always stay over at my grandparents' house. At that time, I was five and she was seven. I had another sister back then, but she was too young to sleep over. Anyway, whenever we slept at my grandparents' house, we had to share a room and a bed. The room that we stayed in was on the second floor, next to a bathroom and my grandparents' bedroom. The first time my sister and I slept over, like I said, I was five. Some may say that I was too young and don't remember it too well, or that I just made up what happened. I thought that too until my grandmother blocked the room off from the rest of her house. All it took was when I told her about the shadow behind the light. Now you might be wondering, what happened or what shadow? Here's the story. My older sister and I were getting ready for bed the first night over at our grandparents' house. We were so excited but also nervous because it was our first sleepover. Anyway, time passed quickly and we were all tucked up in bed. Our grandfather went to bed early while our grandmother stayed awake. On the other hand, we couldn't fall asleep. After staying up and talking for a few minutes, my sister grew tired even though she was wide awake. Another minute passed and she was asleep, and just like that, I was alone. I rolled over to get more room on the bed, but I ended up frozen. I saw the lamp. It was a tall lamp in the room, and light shined into it from a window, but that wasn't what made me freeze. There was a figure, or as I like to call it, Shadow Man. The Shadow Man wore a top hat, and that's all I could make out of the figure. I stared at it for what seemed like an eternity and yet it didn't move. So me, being a kid, I thought that it was just the shadow from the window shining inside the room, but I was wrong. Right as I was about to turn back to face my sister, it moved. The shadow man was moving towards me, so I did, like only a five-year-old could do at a time like that. I screamed, and it went away. I don't know where it went, but it was gone. Of course, my whole family woke up and came into the room, and then I realised it wasn't just 9.30pm, it was 4am, right on the dot. This went on every time I slept over, but then I got older and it stopped. That's when my grandmother shut down the room. Now I'm 16 and I still see the shadow man in my nightmares, so I do ponder if it was real or not. But one thing is still off about it all, because every once in a while, everyone in my house would bolt up awake at 4am and we all don't know why. What I do know is, whatever the Shadow Man is, it isn't good. So this is the first story where the five-year-old thing comes into play. And like I said, that's going to be significant. We're going to see that a lot in the stories to come. But something that really jumped out to me here was the four o'clock thing. Mm. The fact that the family wakes up at four. And the reason I think that's significant is because I think it's good we don't get hung up on these sort of notions that popular entertainment and even shows like ours and, and even our show has presented us with, you know, this idea that three o'clock is the real witching hour, <laughs> you know, and bad shit happens at three. Yeah. And then when something happens at four, you're like, oh no, no, three o'clock is when the bad shit happens. 
<laughs> and I mean, one, I think it's hilarious, this idea that as the day sucks more and more, everyone's up later. So we got to keep pushing the witching hour back because the witching hour is not scary if everyone's awake. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, the other thing is, I think it's just, you can't be dogmatic about this shit. Cause I don't think there's a particular time, you know, I don't, I think it's probably more a set of circumstances or a set of environmental factors than it is the fact that Satan is looking at his wristwatch, just waiting for his opportunity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a there is a strange meme that does the rounds every now and again, which I see on certain paranormal groups on Facebook, which will always say, experts say the reason you wake up at 3am is because a ghost is looking at you. And it's one of those where you think, well, which experts? How do they know? And who's recorded yes. this? Where's, where's the imperial evidence? This is what I want to know. And it plays into these themes that we seem to have developed in the modern era that ghosts only happen at night which is palpable nonsense. And yes. most people who have had the experience of visitor or a, an experience, I would suggest that 90% of them happen in the day. Interesting. I mean, I, I think part of the problem is we fall into that, that habit of we only, actually we've talked about this on a patron show once. We had, cause we had a patron say, you know, why does, why do we only ever see ghosts in Victorian dress? You know? And it's, we said it's because people like to tell the stories they know you know, the things that fit. So those mm. are the stories we tell, right? Cause we're, you know, these the shows are about, I mean, in most cases they're about, you know, being scary and causing fear. And again, we do the same thing. You know, it's fun to be scared, but I think we end up falling into tropes. And the problem is, you know, people kind of just take those tropes and go, well, this is what is, this is all there is, you mm. know? So it's a dark and stormy night or it happened at three in the morning. And then it becomes, as you said, it becomes easy to kind of go, oh, well, experts say, well, one, I just read Amy Bruni's book. And not that I ever considered people in that, in like the television paranormal field to be experts, but a lot of the stuff she said, I thought, yeah, no, no, I was very much correct in assuming that there is not exactly a level of technical mastery going on here. That's not a dig at Amy. She talks about some stuff she saw that makes me think, ah, yeah, okay. That's about what I expected. Mm. But yeah, I think we become sort of slaves to these, these notions and assumptions and yeah. it, it colors the way we see these things. And certain stories will have a cutoff point where people tell the modern version rather than the actual historical version. Bloody Mary is, is a prime example of that. Right. You've, got, you've got the stories about the ghost children that push your car up hills and things, yep. which is quite funny when you look at things from the 90s going, oh, these cars are moving and nobody knows why. Well, we do now. And yet you will still hear people go, oh, well, it's ghost kids pushing it. Well, it's not. It's false perspective. It's been proven. Move yeah. on. And imagine what hell that is. You die as a child and you spend your eternity pushing some asshole's Prius up a hill. Before we read the next story, we're going to take a quick break to pay the bills. So make sure to keep your fingers poised above that skip 15 seconds ahead button. Hello. Hey, Brian. It's Steve the Cheese Demon. Oh, hey, Steve. Uh, what's up? Well, I wanted some advice. I have no idea what kind of advice I could possibly offer an eternal monster, but hit me. Well... Being an eternal monster, it's hard to make new friends. I get to know people for maybe 15 seconds before throwing them into unending hellfire. There's just no time to ask them their opinion on Cannibal Holocaust or the best Mario Bava film. One, it's overrated, and, and two, a bay of blood, but that's beside the point. If you want to meet cool people who share your interest in horror, why not check out ChillerCon UK? What's ChillerCon UK? It's a four-day horror convention in Scarborough, England. It runs from May 26th this year to May 29th. 
This year, it is back and better than ever, with guests like filmmaker and podcaster Mick Garris, writer Grady Hendricks, publisher Jillian Redfern, and with a packed weekend of panel discussions, interviews, workshops, book launches, readings, coffee clatches, and much, much more, this is a place to be if you love the horror genre, whether as someone working, or hoping to, in the field, or as a fan. That sounds way better than shouting at people as they begin an eternity of torment. Do you ever think your job is a contributing factor to your mental health? No. Why? Never mind. For more information on ChillerCon UK, including where to look for accommodation, head to chillercon-uk.com. Thanks, Brian. Hey, uh, I know sometimes this is weird, but would you sing me that lullaby I like? <sighs> Alright. I like big butts and I cannot lie. Oh, that's great. ChillerCon UK. I guarantee you whoever you meet there will be less weird than this. Liquid Vision. This happened in a relatively new home in a small neighborhood in western Massachusetts. I had a loving family, and apart from what I will talk about here, a normal childhood. I'll start out by saying I don't remember much from my early childhood, but these experiences stand out vividly. It started with terrifying, vivid, recurring nightmares when I was maybe six. These nightmares seemed out of place for a kid who's never allowed to be exposed to violence or horror content. A common one included me desperately trying to jump up on my bed while a large snake slowly approached me from my hallway. As it slithered closer and closer, I would feel pure, unadulterated terror, and when it would eventually strike me, I would wake up in a sweat. One of the worst nightmares was where me and my father would be standing in front of a hallway that branched off to the left and led into my parents' room. Five to ten humanoid-like figures would bound out of the darkness of the hallway and proceed to eat both me and my father alive. I could hear him screaming as they reached him, and when they eventually reached me, I would wake up tingling where the humanoids had first bit down onto me. These dreams persisted for the next four years, until I was ten. The dreams were only the beginning, though. I remember starting to feel like I was being watched at night in my bedroom. The darkness in my room became oppressive, and I'd be overcome by dread. It felt like every molecule in that room had stopped moving at once, as if something was about to happen but I couldn't say exactly what. This is when I first saw him. My bed was situated with my head against a wall, and my feet pointed towards a window. To my right was a door leading into another room. To the left of that was a door on the adjacent wall, leading into a Jack and Jill bathroom I shared with my sister. There was just enough light from the window that I could see the outline of a tall black figure with the outline of a top hat sitting on its head. Since this was at least ten years ago, I don't fully remember what its face looked like, but I do remember seeing some sort of liquid reflecting light where his face would have been. I quickly ripped the covers over my head and sat there frozen with terror, unable to move. This went on for many, many months. Every time that sense of dread filled me, I knew he was there, but would not dare to look for fear that he would attack me. There were times that I was so convinced I was not going to make it, I screamed for my parents, and they always came running to find nothing. My dad always assured me nothing would happen to me while he was there, but... I knew if this thing wanted to do me harm, there was nothing he could do. By the time I was about eight years old, the nightmares had become more graphic and more frequent, as did his visits, always filling up that doorway, always standing, always watching. Up to this point, I had never been physically touched or attacked by it, but then that changed. One night when I was hunkered down beneath my sheets and that familiar feeling of dread washed over me, I froze in my bed just as there was a scraping noise from the bathroom and something grabbed my leg through the covers. I lost my freaking mind and started bawling. 
I jumped out of bed and beelined to my parents' room where I stayed for the night. That was the last time I was ever touched by the Shadow Man, but he was there most nights until he moved states when I was 10 years old. All right, so to our listeners, this is all just happening as one. But seamless. It's seamless, but for you and me, yeah, we, you had a major computer crash during that story, and we actually had to switch platforms. We had to switch from Zencaster to Zoom because Zencaster just stopped working for you completely. Yeah, everything else was working fine, just nothing, nothing, not even getting an error, just sitting there staring at me judgmentally. <laughs> to be fair, my computer should have been judging me 10 years ago, not now. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, my computer could still judge me, I guess. But let's not dwell on that. Um, so this was really interesting because, you know, I, I seem to recall elsewhere hearing stories of really profound nightmares and really horrifying nightmares coming from kids who'd never been exposed to violent media. Mm. You know, like I, I don't know if I've said before, but my very first nightmare happened when I was probably four or five, thereabouts, and it was quite gruesome. I, I may have discussed it on the show. I'm not going to bring it up again, but um, it was quite gruesome and there's n- absolutely nothing that I'm aware of that I had seen, which would have presaged any of that. And in this case, the fact that the nightmare involved humanoid figures eating him and his father, like that was, that really, really caught my attention. What do you think about that? It's a very disturbing dream on a variety of levels, because like you say, unless you kind of indulge in those kind of things, then you would kind of say, oh, well, maybe, you know, it's an overactive imagination, but even still, to have such a graphic visualization of a, of a situation is, is quite terrifying. And the fact that it, that came before the appearance of the hat man, mm. you know, I mean, again, sometimes dreams are just dreams, but I also think that maybe it's possible this was some kind of lowering of the defenses. Mm. You know, this idea that, you know, I, I say in some of the stuff, I recognize how wacky it sounds, but ever since reading Dion Fortune's book, about psychic self-defense and this idea that, you know, there can be attacks. I mean, even ever since, you know, having that nightmare recently and waking up in my hypnagogic hallucination to see this fat brown spider kind of walking away from me, Mm. you know, like I, I wonder, I wonder if there are are things out there and this is going to kind of feed into actually something else about the story that, that really interested me, but I wonder if there's things out there, which just feed on fear. You know, we've talked about that many, many times before. And if this is somehow representative of that, if this is somehow representative of what is yeah, basically just a psychic attack and these things, whatever they were, weakened the child's defenses enough that it was then vulnerable to Hatman. And, and the fact that the Hatman's face was liquid light, that is really, really interesting because to me, that is something intentionally trying to obscure its features. Yeah, Definitely. It's one of the most disturbing dream stories I've ever read, if I have to be honest. It's, yeah. uh, it's not good. And if I have dreams like that later, I know who to blame. Footprints. This story happened in 2010 and still pops into my head from time to time. So I thought I'd share it here. It was a summer evening and little 12-year-old me was laying in bed. Given when I usually went back to bed then, this would probably have been around 10 p.m. I was laying on my side facing the wall when I heard, fairly close to me, the sound of walking. At first I thought nothing of it because it could have been my sister or someone else on their way to use the bathroom. From what I can recall, 
The walking was slow-paced, which I thought was weird. The walking then stopped, but I didn't hear the door open for the bathroom, and I would have, since it was right across from my bedroom. After facing the wall a while longer, I decided to turn over and face the rest of the room. When I flipped over, I gasped and froze. I couldn't move at all and I was holding my breath. I'll never forget what I saw. A tall man, dressed in a long black coat and big hat. He was very tall, and I know this may sound odd, but he was even darker than the pitch black room around him. He was standing at the farthest corner, staring at me. He didn't move whatsoever, and neither did I. I don't know how long it lasted, how long I was holding my breath. It could only have been a minute, but it felt like forever. I can't even describe the terror that came over me when I saw him standing there. Then, in the morning, I just woke up. I don't even remember falling asleep or exhaling. One moment I was staring this thing in the face. The next, I was waking up. Now, some of you may be thinking that this was all probably some kind of dream or even sleep paralysis, and I might have even agreed with you had it not been for the two large footprints in the carpet, right? Even in the light of day, they were right where the man had been standing. For years after that, I refused to sleep in my room because I was afraid of seeing him again. Thankfully, I never have, and I hope I never will. And I'll be totally honest. This one was a borderline one for me because it, it, there's really nothing we haven't heard in these other stories and we won't hear in these other stories. But the fact that, that it left a physical trail I, mm. and a trace, again, that's all actually what kind of made me think, eh, I'm not so sure about this. Because my, my wife was a CSI when she was in England and one of her, her specialties was mm. footwear. And so she talks a lot about when we're watching shows, she'll say, oh, look at those footwear marks. So I, I can't help but think about these things now. And so I find myself thinking, what kind of footwear was the hat man wearing? And I want to know, I want, I want cast impressions of his, you know, Doc Martens or whatever the hell it was, you know, his Blundstone boots. Wrinkle pickers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What kind of footwear are they? <laughs> is it comfortable footwear? Does he have a bad back? sketches. That's right. New balance. You know, you, you look like someone's dad, but they're comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I always wear Adidas. So yeah, so that one, I'm, I'm again a little bit borderline, but I do appreciate the fact that it was 10 o'clock mm -hmm. and not three in the morning, you know, 3.33 to mock the time Jesus was crucified. You know, it's just, oh yeah, no, I went to bed and I saw some weird shit. Because when I saw those bats when I was a kid, it was not that late. It was just dark. Mm. Was there anything about the story that jumped out to you? Well, I always like, like you pointed out there, leaving a physical impression in any kind of paranormal encounter is always enticing, but that's shows a presence, doesn't it? But it also shows a weight for them to have left an impression. But then again, do you think- I was thinking that. Do you think, was it a case of he simply vanished when our storyteller woke up and that's why the, the footprints were still there? Because if they'd left that impression, that would have to have been a really heavy weight. So does that signify that this presence has some kind of physicality or is it a weight of emotion that leaves these impressions? I think it's a very intriguing aspect of it. And like you say, it kind of lifts it from other ones because, you know, you've got the sleep paralysis and the feeling of fear and dread. And then suddenly it's morning and you've woken up. You don't remember falling asleep, which often happens in some of these encounters that people report, but to then wake up and kind of get the full stop on uh, Nightmare Alley is, is not the best way to come round, I would suggest. Although I'm imagining the hat man who is so heavy 
He's leaving footwear marks that are, stick around for hours afterwards. Too many souls oh, and, uh, it play havoc on your hips in the other <laughs> life. You know, they do warn you about soul food. Oh, no, we're done here. The Gray Face. I have seen the Hat Man, and it is something that has bothered me my entire life. The first time I remember seeing him was around the age of five. At the time, we were living in Fredericksburg, Texas, in a small house located in a quiet neighborhood. It would have been around 1990 when all of this began. Basically, I would wake up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, like any normal child would, I suppose. My mother always left the door up to my bedroom open. I shared the room with my younger brother. And more often than not, that's where the hat man would be standing. He appeared to be about six or so feet tall. He wore a large brimmed hat that always covered his eyes. He was dressed in a long coat of some sort, most likely a trench coat. The area where there would be facial features was shrouded in a misty gray color that gave the appearance that no face existed on him. The worst part of all, I suppose, at least in my memory, was the fact that past his knees, his legs just vanished. He always stood there, never moving. Sometimes he was right in the doorway, other times a bit back, still other times to the right or left. He never entered my bedroom, though I'm not sure why. Given how young I was, I could easily have passed this off as merely a troubled imagination if it wasn't for the fact that he followed me. When I was eight years old, we moved about 16 miles out of town, maybe halfway between Harper and Fredericksburg. The man was there too, his behavior unchanged. He'd just stand there, apparently staring at me. As I am sure you can imagine, I was quite terrified and decided that wetting my bed was a better idea than trying to face the terrifying apparition haunting me. As a result, I kept what I was seeing a secret from my family for years and instead just took the shame of being a bedwetter. Eventually, when I was 11 years old, my parents divorced and we moved halfway across the state. I never saw him again. Many years later, in my early 20s, I finally told my mother and brother what I had seen as a child in Fredericksburg. They seemed concerned, but not as much as when my brother told me something particularly chilling. After I had moved out of my mother's house when I was almost 16, my brother told me that he got up to use the restroom one night, and standing outside of my old bedroom was the hat man, staring at my closed door. I've not seen him since, and hope to keep it that way, but I've always been concerned as to why he followed me for so long. What did he want? And so there are a few things there. You know, I, I actually really, obviously, these are just stories we found online, but I really feel for this kid, you know, because the idea of being so frightened that you would just piss your bed rather than face up to this thing, like, I, I just feel for that so hard. Well, it's quite interesting because Paul Sinclair, who's been on my show a couple of times, when he was having some of his incidents as a child, he had exactly the same response to them. Oh, really? That he would rather wet the bed and deal with that aspect of parental disapproval right. than be honest about seeing strange things in his bedroom that bothered him every night. Jesus. That's a real level of fear that you're prepared to put yourself through that both physically and emotionally than rather face up to whatever it is that's haunting you. Yeah. I mean, it puts me in mind of something that I think I talked about on the show when it happened. I think I may have been a little more upfront about who it happened to, but I'm not going to be as open now. But I know someone who, when their kid was maybe maybe five, maybe five, six, thereabouts, they were, and as far as I know, this was never actually solved. It just ended. But they were so scared of something, they would hide under their covers at night until they were hypoxic. So afraid, they would rather not breathe than look at whatever was out there. And again, I, 
I wasn't close enough to it to really ask those kinds of questions because they're, you know, they're not those kind of people, but it, it, it makes you wonder in light of this. And I wonder now, was there something that this, this kid was seeing that just made them think, nope, better to, better to suffocate under here than deal with whatever's out there. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very strange thing because I mean, bedwetting is, is something that's often framed in some kind of psychological framework. That's a very poor choice of words there. <laughs> but um, often there are, there, there are completely rational reasons given all the time. And, and yet, when we deal with situations like this and we hear the stories like this and we speak to people that have gone through very similar things, it certainly puts that kind of situation in a different light. Is it simply something psychological or are these people actually prepared to put themselves through that than rather face whatever is going on outside of the bed. And the other thing that jumped out to me here was the fact that this shadow man's face was also obscured, but this mm. time not by a liquid that reflected light, but by a, a kind of misty gray blob. Mm. And the fact that this has turned up in two different stories from two different people that I found in two different places on the internet, or pardon me, that Anthony found in two different places on the internet, mm. this suggests to me that this is a conscious choice not by the witness, but by whatever it is they're observing. And as we're about to find out, I think in the next story and then the, uh, probably not the next one, the one, anyways, as we're about to find out in upcoming stories, these, these encounters are not always frightening. And it makes me think there is agency here of, of mm. a kind. I don't know what, but the fact that they're choosing to obscure their features says to me, they have a choice in doing that. And I wonder, you know, have you ever seen the movie, The Adjustment Bureau? Yes. So for our listeners who don't know, and I'm not going to get into the whole plot, but the idea behind The Adjustment Bureau was that there is this group of men who sort of exist apart from reality, but they structure it a little bit like Dark City. They enter our world to adjust the way things progress in order to produce a certain result. And I kind of wonder if that might not be an interesting framework to use to try and make sense of what we're seeing with shadow people encounters. If we're going to be open to the idea of like parallel dimensions, there is a particular place or a particular group of people who are interested in children for whatever reason. And some people are trying to take care of them and protect them. And others have more nefarious things in mind. And it just seems to depend on who you get. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's an interesting question really, isn't it? Because often there are numerous encounters where people do have a positive response to it incredibly. But the thing that makes me wonder about all this when people say, oh, well, it's just sleep paralysis or it's a psychological imprint on your memory and that's why you're seeing these things. I've said this a few times to people when we've been talking about the hat man and shadow people. I could understand if people were seeing shadow people who were wearing baseball caps or flat caps because right. they're everywhere in certain areas, in certain cities, in certain locations, loads of people will wear baseball caps or flat caps. Right. right. When's the last time you saw somebody wearing a fedora or a top hat? Yeah. I mean, I have a friend who has a bowler hat and I wear, I wear a pork pie hat that some people seem well, to think is a fedora, which greatly upsets me. <laughs> so these aren't things that children will culturally pick up on. Sure. They don't see them. There are no established characters in the modern pantheon. And I'm using my experience here as an uncle. <laughs> who is forced to watch a wide variety of international cartoons. 
where characters wear fedora hats. They're just very rarely seen. And when you go out, you will be struck if you see somebody wearing one, because these days it's so unusual. You know, 70 years ago, fine, if people were, were seeing these strange dark shapes wearing hat, wide-brimmed hats, fair enough. Everybody was wearing wide-brimmed hats at that period of time. Nowadays, nobody does. So where's this memory coming from? Why are people seeing these shapes? What does this shape reveal about us? Well, again, this idea of uh, like the, the haunting bureau, mm. you know, the, the hat man bureau, the, this idea that there's these groups of people somewhere out there who have this interest in us. Maybe again, maybe their world, maybe they have a uniform, you know, or maybe, mm. maybe in their world, people dress a certain way. At this point, we're well off into woo-woo land, so it's hard to say with any kind of certainty, but that sort of also allows you the freedom to speculate and the freedom to, to ask yourself, okay, so maybe there's a sideways world that developed differently. You know, we assume that it's going to be like ours, right? We assume that there's going to be, you know, yeah, sideways ghost guy wearing a sideways baseball cap with, you know, back in like 2000, he had frosted tips and he's got now, I don't know, an undercut or whatever the fuck it is they have. <laughs> I'm not up on these things, Paul. But I wonder, I know, I wonder if part of the reason we have such a hard time making sense of this is because we're dealing with a group of people or a, or a whole world, which has progressed in a completely different direction from us. You know, maybe they, yeah. Anyways, I, I could go on, you know, there's so many things like, I, and that's why I think movies like dark city and the adjustment bureau are interesting because they sort of depict a group of people who exist in an, in a world, which is more advanced than ours because they have access to ours and we don't have access to theirs but it appears to be non-digital. And for us, we think the very height of technology is digital technology. So maybe this is a group of people who have figured things out that we never did. And they never had, you know, the same kind of industrial revolution we had. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm just throwing chalk at the board, but I, I love noodling on this stuff. Yeah, very much so. I mean, it also takes you into the realms of men in black and things. I mean, why do they always dress like that? Because they stand out like us all thumb as well. In my dreams... I drowned. In the summer of 2012, my family took a holiday to Brittany in the north of France and rented a caravan in a local site. Frankly, the site was beautiful. There was a nearby beach, nice sports facilities, a large pool and a brilliant restaurant. For the first few nights, things were great. I slept well, had a good time during the day and was truly beginning to relax. Then, my younger brother, who was six at the time, began to say things that particularly unnerved us. One night we went to the bar for dinner and began to watch the Euro 2012 final. Over dinner, conversation was flowing and we began to debate whether death was really it or you could carry on afterwards. My younger brother then told us that he believed you could go on after death. We all shot him a funny look. He rarely offered his opinion on anything and on a subject like this we expected him to be terrified but he sat in his chair, resolute as ever, and told us he believed that. When I asked why, he told us about the man he talked to last night. He said the man had told him that he was already dead, but he wasn't gone. My dad, who's quite a spiritual man by all accounts, probed him further. All my brother would say was that the man wore a top hat and a trench coat. The next day we didn't mention it, and it was all but forgotten. We had dinner outside the caravan, and my little brother got himself grounded, and my mum ordered him to his room. He refused. He told us he would go into any room but his. 
My dad looked worried. He escorted my brother into the caravan and put him in my room. He looked uncomfortable coming back outside. It was a warm day, but Dad said he definitely felt a chill. Being a bit of a daddy's boy, no shame in that. When Dad said he was sleeping in my brother's room, I jumped at the chance to join him. I took top bunk, he took bottom, and both of us fell asleep almost instantly. There was no man in a top hat that night. Over breakfast, however, Dad told me he'd dreamed he was drowning, as if he was folded up, limbs pinned to his chest deep underwater. Later that day, my gran, a devout Irish Catholic, who had come on holiday with us, came over for lunch. She reported a cold feeling from my brother's room and told us to stay away from it. She knew nothing else about our experience in the caravan, and it was at this point we decided to relocate. And I don't blame you. Yep, I mean, that. if, if anything, if, if I can't imagine what else it would take to convince you to leave. <laughs> I mean, I guess these caravans are expensive. I know, certainly, I've stayed in haunted Airbnbs, and I thought, well, fuck it, I've paid. <laughs> yeah, well, we've paid for this. I don't care if there's a ghost trying to possess us. We're staying. Welcome to the Amityville Caravan Park. Oh, so it's fake and not real. That's perfect. <laughs> they just charge Welcome you more to for the it. Waverly Hills Caravan Park. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's a little more sobering. <laughs> our uh, our keen-eared listeners will recognize that from episode. Oof, I can't remember the number, but that's that was a story we told in the Haunting of France episode. And the reason I, I brought that one back was because this is an instance where the Hat Man speaks. And there's also these accompanying nightmares. And what's really interesting about these is that this is not just affecting one person. This is affecting the son and dad. And of course, that was the same story with the other fellow. This was the, a, young, a young boy and his father dreaming, pardon me, a young boy dreaming that he and his father were being devoured. So there, there's this interesting male connection there, this sort of like uh, filial, is it filial? But anyways, there's a connection between father and son that mm-hmm. again, I, I don't necessarily understand, but I'm. I'm fascinated by it because I think we, we sometimes, there's this uh, kind of trope or cliche that women are the ones who have these experiences. Mm. And certainly, you know, nine times out of 10, when we hear a story about a bozo partner poo-pooing a certain experience, it's, it's a dude. But obviously, yes. you know, men have these experiences as well. And the similarity is, is, was just so striking. Again, I, I felt I had to include this one again. Definitely. It, and it's interesting that they both have two very distinct impressions. Because there's a lot of that that makes, I mean, if a six-year-old, whilst he's having his dinner, starts talking in such a philosophical way, that would make you sit up and take notice regardless, whether or not sure. he's received this information from the other side, whatever. If a six-year-old starts telling you that why they believe in the concept of life after death, then that would be very interesting regardless. To then find out that they're telling you that because the man that came to see them in their room last night is dead and has told them that things just carry on. I would imagine would put the willies up anybody. I, I remember, and I've told the story a hundred times on the show, but taking my young niece to the park back in 2012. So she would have been, I don't know, she would have been, no, it wasn't 2012, but it was around there. She would have been three or four. Mm. And she, I was pushing her on the swing and she was looking up at this tree and she was just saying things like, it's too late. It's too late for me. It's too late for mommy. And I, I said, uh, what are you talking about there, sweetie? I said, who are you talking to? And she goes, ghost. I said, oh, okay. Do you like that? 
And she kind of went, no, she said, I'm scared. And I said, okay. I said, well, we'll go to, I didn't make a big deal out of it. So let's just go get in, get in uncle's car. We'll go to a different park. And we went to another park and shouldn't speak about it again. But when I came home that, that afternoon, I told my sister what had happened. And she said, oh, well, you know, she watches Scooby-Doo and there's always a ghost in Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. And I thought, I mean, sure. You know, I think that might explain where she gets the word ghost, but the fact she's talking to something in the trees that she then applies that word to, I don't think Scooby-Doo necessarily explains that. Yeah. I'd also like to point out that it's, it's never a ghost in Scooby-Doo. That's the punchline. Oh, that's a good point. Yep. So is a man dressed as a ghost. Well, unless Spider-Man or the Predator was up in the tree, I think this was not a man dressed as anything. But what's really interesting is that park is at the bottom of a place called Farwell Hill, which Mm. is a very haunted part of Revelstoke. Mm. And there, a long time ago, again, I've, I've spoken about this on the show before, but I had a dream about being taken by two children down a set of steps which, uh, long story short, took me to a place where dead people lived. And in the dream, those steps were on that hillside, which is above the park. So this is all, there, there is just this particular vibe to all that area. So I, I don't know, but it all just kind of puts me in mind of this and think, well, again, we've said before, when kids say stuff, you kind of, it's not good to write it off entirely. I mean, kids say a lot of shit, sure. But if they're talking about, uh, Life after death for no reason at dinner, eh, maybe investigate that a little further. <laughs> I mean, especially as well, where they are, Brittany obviously saw a lot of bloodshed. Of course, during the yeah. Second World War. So uh, who's to say that it wasn't someone that had fallen during that campaign as well, which adds a bit more gravitas to it all, I think. Well, now I feel bad for making the jokes I made. Thanks, Paul. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. Burning. When I was about 11, it was around 1993 or 94, I had what I thought at the time was a very realistic and scary dream. As a kid, every bump in the night could have been a ghost or a robber to me. I wasn't necessarily a scared kid in general, but I think anyone at 11 is somewhat still making up their minds on what is real and what is not. That is why when I saw the hat man, as frightening as it was, I was able to eventually just write it off as a vivid nightmare. I can remember a lot of details about this experience. At the time, my family lived in a trailer, which was converted into a double-wide shortly before this experience. Up until then, I had shared a room with my sister since I was a baby. I had only recently gotten my own room, and and I had it exactly the way I wanted it. Standing in the doorway looking into my room, my red metal bed was in the far left corner, oriented along the left wall. There was a space of about one and a half feet at the foot of it, and then my dresser, which was to my left as you look in the room. My closet was on the right, and it was closed. The room was partially lit by a black and white television sitting on the right side of the dresser at the foot of my bed. This meant as I lay in bed, I would be looking toward the TV and the bedroom door to the left of my dresser. I remember waking up shortly after I was sent to bed. I cannot recall exactly how long I had been sleeping, but it didn't feel like very long. That is when I saw the figure that I now know as the hat man. He was a silhouette standing in the doorway. The figure had what I thought resembled a cowboy hat on, and he had a very distinct outline. Also, as a silhouette, he had a thin, red-lit outline. It wasn't like shine or a light from behind him, but rather a thin outline attached to him. I was scared. After all, I had just opened my eyes and this figure was there. It was silent. I thought for a moment about who it could be. I had two older brothers, and my father as the other males in the house, but the body wasn't the shape of any of them. I remember feeling panicked and holding my body very, 
very still. I had a thought that maybe if I don't move, it won't see me. I was afraid that if it was a burglar, he may not have seen me in the dark room, and I held as still as I possibly could. Looking towards the figure, it became clear that whatever I was looking at, it wasn't someone from my house. The red outline really kind of made me think something wasn't right. The best way I can describe it was like the blinking light on the front of Kit from Knight Rider, only thinner, and the blinking was all moving around the silhouette of his body in the same direction. It wasn't bright, just lit enough that I could clearly see it as described. I closed my eyes and opened them. He was still there. I closed my eyes again for what seemed like a minute, but when I opened them, he was still there in the doorway in the same spot. My Looney Tunes comforter was pulled up to my chin, and I made the decision to slowly sink my head under it as I pulled it up over me. This was the most terrifying thing I had ever experienced up till then. I was hiding, and I thought if I just stayed under my blanket, he would be gone when I came out. I stayed under the cover for a few minutes and peeked out again, and he was still there. At this point, I felt like I was definitely awake, and that there was definitely a figure in my doorway. It did not feel like a dream. He felt threatening and terrifying. The figure said nothing. He made no noise. He didn't come toward me. While he didn't even move much, he appeared like a real figure that would slightly adjust his stance, like anyone who'd been standing for a long period of time. I decided I was just going to stay under my coverts for the night, and I did. At least for a little while. I drifted off to sleep again under my blanket, but I cannot recall for how long. I just remember opening my eyes under the blanket and becoming awake, hardly even thinking about that figure anymore. That didn't last. Still, even after I had drifted to sleep and woke again, he was still standing there. I had never had anything like this happen before. I again retreated under my covers. This time, I was there for the night. The morning came, the sun was out, and the room was no longer dark. The hat man was gone, and I have never seen him since. I remember this experience staying with me in my head for quite some time. At nighttime, laying in the same position, I would look at my doorway every single night, terrified he would come back. But he didn't. While I can't remember if this was the latter half of 1993 or the first half of 1994, shortly after this experience, in April of 1994, our house caught fire when a kerosene heater malfunctioned and completely burned down. I never related the two instances or thought the hat man had anything to do with it, but now I find myself wondering. The night of the fire, my bedroom door just happened to be closed. Because of this, the fire seemed to spread back through the hall, completely passing my door and destroying everything else in the trailer. The fire company came and put out the fire, and oddly, my room, all my toys, and my metal bed were untouched. This is the start of what I'm sort of referring to as our happy hat men stories, which is to say stories which are not shit terrifying. And there's a story in Strange which will soon be back where all fine books are sold, where these people had the experience of this guy with a hat and they would see him at daytime, nighttime. They assumed it was their grandfather because their grandfather was a cattle. Um, he would go on cattle drives and he would kind of dress like that. So they never, it never bothered them, but it bothered their grandkids or their kids. So they thought it was their dad. The adults thought it was their dad, but the grandkids or the kids rather just said, hmm. We don't like this guy who stares at us while we play. Mm. But I do wonder if there is an element of interpretation here. You know, I mean, did the, the hat man set fire to his house? I mean, I don't think so because I, I think that's a little bit of that correlation rather than causation. But you do wonder, is there some significance to the fact that, that room wasn't touched? And was this person just misinterpreting its presence and it actually wasn't trying to frighten them? If you 
ignore the fear factor of the situation. You could simply say that this was a warning because after that, he constantly kept his eye on that doorway all the time. Oh, that's a great point. And I would imagine that's probably why his door was closed. Yeah, of course. him standing there. And if the hat man hadn't appeared, then that door would never have been shut and he would have lost everything. Yeah. So added to the fact that they had this strange kind of strip lighting sort of running around him, which I love the description of it's looking like Kit from Knight Rider. Because as soon as you say that, depending on your vintage, you can immediately picture what what it looked like. So was that a silhouette of, of flames dancing? Oh, that's an interesting idea. Huh. I'm struck by how limited we are as creatures. You know, as as humans, we just have such shitty machinery for making sense of the world around us. You know, we, mm. we're designed so badly. Everything works, you know, most of the time, but not always. And then sometimes it just stops working for no apparent reason. <laughs> and we're so afraid. We're, we're just, we're hardwired to be afraid because we're soft and squishy and pretty much everything in the world is equipped to kill us out of the gate. You know, we had to kind of figure out how to make that not happen. <laughs> so it makes sense that, you know, we just kind of default to fear because we're soft, squishy, sad things. And, you know, that's what's kept us alive all this time. But I wonder if it's hindering our ability to make sense of these things. Absolutely. Um, well, it's one of those things, isn't it? Not necessarily. Because often people would, would say in the past that, encountering a ghost or something may be some kind of portent. And you have this with stories of, of black shucks, that not all of them are terrifying stories. There are plenty where the shuck is protecting people or guarding them. But if you focus on a particular aspect of any paranormal phenomenon, I mean, I'm not saying the vast majority aren't frightening for people and they're just misinterpreting it because clearly a lot of people aren't. They're, you know, they're, they're terrified. Whereas the ones where something good seems to come out of it often get lost in the wash because they're not, they're not what we want. They're not what we're expecting this phenomenon to behave like. Like we were saying earlier, they don't fit the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, you wonder if just, if the adjustment bureau, whatever, or the Hatman bureau, whatever you want to call it, again, if they're trying to do, generally speaking, positive things, but we're just incapable of seeing that because of the fear barrier. Because you think about it, you think, think about, um, you know, I, I told the story one time how I ran into a mother and her son during COVID who had this, found a bird outside the, the UPS store where, where the show's mailbox is. They found this bird and the bird was somehow gotten trapped in this very fine string. So it was mm. tethered to the bush. So I went to the car, got my knife and we, I just cut the line connecting the bird to the bush and it fucked off and it flew away. And of course, that was me doing something positive for that bird, but that bird was probably shit terrified of me the entire time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if we are such simple creatures that we cannot possibly understand what these things are doing, it, may, it may just makes sense that we would view them purely with fear. Yeah. I mean, there's a very famous piece of footage of a diver who, I think they're swimming with humpback whales and the whale just suddenly starts to come close to her all the time. And she's really frightened by what's happening. She doesn't understand and she's worried that the flipper's going to smash her into pieces or she's going to get hit with a fluke or whatever. Right. And it was only when she got out and they were looking at the footage that there was a great white and the whale was protecting her. Fascinating. And yeah, that's it. You know, we, we just were incapable of understanding the context. So we view things with fear. Mm. 
I mean, fear is a useful tool. Don't get me wrong. Fear has kept me. Fear is why I'm still here. But well, fear and therapy. But at the same time, maybe you know, maybe it it uh, it's a barrier to greater understanding. I, actually, I, I assume that's probably just a great truism. Fear is often a barrier to greater understanding. There's nothing to fear apart from fear itself. And spiders. Mm? The Happy Hat Man. One of my first memories comes when I was about five years old. It was an experience I still can't explain, but has lived on vividly in my mind for years. We had just finished moving into a nice new mobile home. We still hadn't finished unpacking by the time I went to bed, and I still remember the boxes littered around my room. In the middle of the night, I woke up to see a man with a long trench coat and a hat on next to my bed. He was very tall and all black. The man didn't frighten me at all. In fact, I felt a sense of comfort and ease in the presence of this man. He told me that it was not safe in my room, and I needed to grab my blanket and pillow and follow him. I did as he said, and he led me to our living room. He told me to lay down on our couch and sleep there. I did as he said, and remember him telling me to cover up and go back to sleep. He told me I was safe now, and I took myself in. He then floated backwards down the hall out of sight, and I fell asleep. When my dad found me on the couch in the early morning, the sun wasn't up yet, he asked me why I was on the couch, and I told him what the man had said, that it wasn't safe in my room and I should sleep on the couch. He calmly asked me who the man was and where he went. He checked the locks, searched the house, and found nothing out of place. I have never had sleep paralysis, night terrors, or seen this man again. When I googled what I saw, others have seen the same thing, but it's always a bad thing. My experience was not scary at all. My experience was comfortable, and I felt at ease. So, in my wanderings and talking to people about various weird subjects, I have encountered people who've had something in their house which seems to direct them to go sleep elsewhere. Mm. No one has ever really had any kind of sense to make of it. They've never really had a suggestion. No one's been like, oh, my Oma used to tell me to go sleep on the couch. There was nothing like that. And reading this, I can't help but think that, again, there is something to this idea that maybe some of them are looking out for us. Mm -hmm. And there's something about bedrooms. There's something about this place where you're vulnerable. Mm. Maybe these things travel along certain lines. Mm. And maybe there are times when the train is coming through and whatever's on the train is not good for you or is mm. going to be attracted to whatever it is you represent. And so these things just come and gently guide you out of the way. Again, there's, this feels like it's not an accident. This feels like something, again, something keeping an eye out, something trying to maintain the natural order. You know, they're not trying mm. to stop Actually, this kind of ties in, in a way to the interview I did with the folks from uh, Wonder Wheel Productions talking about that movie Hellbender, because mm. Hellbender is about you know this young girl whose true nature is actually quite terrifying. And we talked about this idea that you know a hurricane isn't in and of itself good or bad; it simply is. Mm. And your experience of it is going to depend on whether or not it's you know it's bearing down on your house. And I kind of wonder if that's the same way. You know, if these, if there's something to the idea that these things are just trying to conduct the business of the world mm. or the business of the two worlds, you know, sort of like, like, in a way, like conductors or like signalmen, and they're trying to allow things to be the things they are without 
causing as much harm. Yeah, absolutely. And clearly he was very satisfied with what he'd done because he was showing off as he floated off backwards. I mean, that's just pushing the envelope there, isn't it? <laughs> Moonwalking. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I, it, something about this one though really caught me. Also the fact that again, this is another one where it spoke, not, not physically, but spoke. Mm. But it's also the fact that often you hear stories like this with children where they'll speak to somebody, whereas in a normal situation, you would be like, who the chuffing hell are you? What are you doing in my room? I'm not following you. What are you on about? I'm staying here. It's my bed. <laughs> yeah. Get stuffed. Yeah. Or maybe that was the plan. The hat man wanted to sleep in that bed because it was really comfy. <laughs> he's just he's just some shadowy hobo who wants a nice place to sleep. He's like, I'm not sleeping on the couch. He's, his bag, he's got a young back. He can handle it. Yeah, absolutely. Get on the couch, you and let the old guys sleep. Now, I'm 375 years old. I need a rest. <laughs> he's, and he's quite heavy if the uh, indentations on the floor are any indication. Yeah, he's got some heavy feet to rest up. <laughs> this is another story of uh, positive hat men, or happy hat men number two, if you go by what I put in the script. I have also had a positive experience with a hat man. This was in 2014. My family and I were going through some turmoil as my husband had lost a job of five years and he was getting by on a minimum wage job at night while looking for something better during the day. Things were stressy. I was sleeping on our bed with just our big goofy dog for company and it was about 2 a.m. when suddenly I awoke. My dog woke up at the same time and we both stared at the bedroom door as if drawn to it. There, leaning around the half-open door, was a tall, very dark shadow man in a trench coat and a fedora like a giant Humphrey Bogart. Now there's an image. I felt no fear at all, and even more unusually, neither did my dog. Then a thought from the shadow man came into my head saying, I'm just checking to see if you're okay. In my head I said, oh, okay, in reply and promptly went back to sleep, as did my dog. I don't understand that reaction at all. At the very least, I should have sat up and said, what the fuck? But instead I felt comforted by this being, as if a friend or someone I've known for a very long time had just visited me and for my dog to not leap up growling and snarling was inexplicable. I don't know why so many people have bad experiences with this being, except that maybe it's not just one being. Maybe it's several beings visiting our dimension, and for some reason this is the way they look when they're here. And like humans, not all of them are bad. He felt like a strong, good person, like a friend who was worried about me and wanted me to know he was there for me. I wish he'd come back. I'd like to talk to him and feel that comfort again. And for this one, again, I, I've told these stories before, but they keep becoming relevant, so you're just going to have to keep hearing them, folks. My sister had this experience. She was in bed in her room. My niece was asleep in the, in, the, in the room across the hall, and she saw a shadow figure. She was laying in bed. She was listening to music, and she's certain she was dreaming, but in the dream, she was listening to the same music she'd been when she fell asleep, and she was in exactly the same position. She wasn't even aware she'd fallen asleep, as far as I know. But this shadow came up the stairs and didn't quite walk into the room as much as it was suddenly right next to her. But it said the same way to her, don't be afraid, it's not what you think. And then it moved into my niece's room. And that night, or the next morning I should say, my niece told my sister that she dreamed that grandpa had come to visit her. And they had played and they had done dishes together and they'd had fun. Like they had, she had all these wonderful dreams about about her grandfather who had passed the year before. And I can't help but think maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to this. Again, this is an idea. They're obscuring their identity. There's a, there's a kind of like cloaking happening here. 
You know, I, I, I'm reminded of a dream I had above my grandmother a long time ago, my, my paternal grandmother. And in the dream, we were shooting the shit like, like normal. And she, she'd been dead for about two years. And all of a sudden her, her, it was like her face stayed the same, but her eyes kind of twitched and then they were gone and they were replaced by these kind of yellow eyes. And this voice came out of her mouth that wasn't hers. And it said, you can't be doing this. This is against the rules. This stops right now. <laughs> and that was the end of the dream. But it was like something like the, again, the body was just a vessel mm. and something else jumped in and went, nope, this is not how this works. And so maybe again, it's, it's hard for me to accept the notion of, you know, despite doing the show, it's hard for me to accept the notion of life after death or people coming back to visit. But maybe that's, maybe that's part of what we're seeing. Maybe that's why there is this protective feeling to it. Well, my mum was convinced that the visitor that used to come and see me when I was a child was, was her grandfather. Interesting. Who died when I was about two. And was there a particular reason she would think that? Apparently he thought I was amazing. He just, he would always sit me on his knee or whatever. And he just, just was enamored with me. Oh, and okay. He, and then he passed away. I don't remember him at all. Interesting. Um, so, but she was convinced, but she never saw him. So how does she know? And I couldn't remember him. Right. Of course. Well, cause if, and you wouldn't know him. So you even yeah. see, see the face. Yeah. I just said it was a nice, nice old man who used to talk to me. And sorry, this, this would appear as dreams or this was something that would just come while you were awake. Well, it was when I was awake every night. Interesting. For about three or four years. Till I was about four or five. Think, no, for about three years till I was about five. Five again. Yeah. It's the only room in the house. We didn't have any weird stuff happen. It was my bedroom. The rest of the house, it was like, yeah, all bets are up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's explained so much about Paul, but yeah. it's like this, yeah, something, something looking out for you mm. or someone, I, mean, I guess I shouldn't say something. Never know. Could be both. Good. Yeah. Could very well be. All right. We have, we have one more happy hat man story left. My experience with the hat man happened around the time I was five or six and was a comfortable one. Like many others I have seen, he was wearing a trench coat, fedora, and had a shadowy face. I could only see him from the collar up because he was looking in through my bedroom window. I couldn't make out any facial features except his eyes, which were looking back and forth around my room. At first I froze, but it was like I didn't even register him. I didn't get the sense he could see me or was looking for me at all. I didn't feel scared or uncomfortable after the initial, what's that? I looked away and back, and he was gone. Maybe he was protecting me or looking out for me. Weird stuff did happen in that house, and other entities appeared on the regular, but I only ever saw the hat man once. Kudos to this person, whoever they are, because if I saw any kind of face looking in my window, I would just <laughs> immediately die shitting. Especially if you're on the third floor. Well, yeah, that, that would, that would cause some consternation. Let me in. Paul, use the front door like I told you. The spiritual stair lift's not working. Let me in. <laughs> That's right. That hat man guy is wheezing his way up the stairs. He's, he's taking forever. I've climbed up the ghostly gray blind. <laughs> so yeah, we, uh, as always folks, we don't have any answers, but we have lots of questions. And if you've had your own hat man experience, send us a message, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You can also leave a message on the ghost line, as we'll tell you here in the next segment. But we would love to hear from you, your theories, your thoughts, your, again, your, your own experiences, if you've had them and hats off, Hey, to Anthony for suggesting this topic and finding most of these stories. You were questioning my puns earlier. <laughs> I had to get one in. Come on. Yeah. It's very interesting this because since 
I started doing my show and, and working with you as well. One of my friends last year told me about his shadowy encounter that he'd never told me in the 40 years that we've been friends. Um, Interesting. So whether that's because he felt he could open up about it, because like I say, I think for a lot of people, some of these experiences are quite weird. And as a child, you're always told you've not seen it, you've dreamt it, you've imagined it. it sure. Stop being silly. And he was, in, uh, he was sleeping at his grandparents and he was just sat in bed uh, and the whole light was on and his door was slightly ajar. And then this, this thing sort of popped around and he just said it was just a solid black shape. As, as one of the stories said earlier, it was, it was blacker than black. And he was so frightened, he picked up his action man rocket launcher and <laughs> fired the rocket at him and it went through it. Then he oh. heard it hit the banister and fall right. to the floor and he was terrified he went, and dived straight under his covers and stayed there till morning and then he thought oh what a weird dream and then when he got up in the morning the little rocket was still on the landing ready to land it well again it just it seems to be such a common experience and leaves me with so many questions that i i can't imagine we're gonna have any answers for although maybe since we talked about this the boy anthony did maybe we'll get a visit like he did or hopefully you but <laughs> Have haunted chessboard, would love a game. There you go. Hatman, Sheffield's way cooler than Victoria. And Paul plays, I mean, I play chess too, but I'm shit at it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> go bother him. But for now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the number to call is 1-800-273-8255. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you. 
and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. As always, thanks to the rest of the team, Anthony, Sarah, Luke, and Joseph. Luke, of course, host of the Luke Lore podcast. You can find that anywhere. Fine podcasts live. And you can also check out the website, lukelore.com. We have transcripts for almost every one of his episodes up there now. So if you've got some folklore knowledge you want to learn, but by God, you don't have time to listen to a short form podcast, then hey, lukelore.com is for you. Also, don't forget to check out In Search of Ghosts on YouTube. You'll find a link in the show notes. That is hosted by Joseph Camo, who's part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Joseph and I also host the live stream Weird Together, where we talk about paranormal movies and documentaries. We most recently talked about the horror film The Scary of 61st, which is a, it's a fiction film, but it touches on some real life stuff. And so that, uh, that made for some interesting conversation. And you'll find all of that on the Ghost Story Guys YouTube channel. Thanks also to you, my friend and co-host, the amazing Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson, host of Mysteries and Monsters. What's coming up on Eminem, Paul? Well, this week, I'm interviewing practicing witch and paranormal investigator Sharice Williams about her new book, A Witch's Guide to Ghost Hunting. So we have a chat about utilizing some witchcraft to assist in the research of the paranormal, which is a very interesting conversation and something I'm finding myself delving deeper and deeper into as I speak to more practitioners of, of witchcraft. So that's very interesting. So yeah, that's good. So it's, yeah, hectic week. Lots of stuff going on. Obviously, I've just got the list of films I've got to watch, as, as I'm now very humbled to be added to, a, uh, to the jury panel for the Fortium Film Festival here in the UK in September. <laughs> Absolutely. That is so cool, man. Yeah, I just got the list. There's 170 things on it. Holy shit. And you have to watch them all. Yeah. Luckily, I was having a quick skim through. Some of them seem to be just posters. Oh, so I've just got to look at some pictures for some of them, but there are short and long form films. So yeah, it, it sounds really exciting. I'm really yeah, excited. And there's some extremely famous people in the, in the world of the paranormal and crypto. So wasn't she on the jury? So I'm, uh, I'm rubbing shoulders with the great and the good. As well. You should, my friend, congratulations. That's uh, well-deserved. Yeah. One step closer to, to shaking Bobo's hand from finding Bigfoot. Okay. Okay. I was not sure if that was a euphemism or where that was going. Because so. <laughs> he's on the panel as well. Oh, cool. Well, there you go. You can shake <laughs> hands with Bobo all you want, I'm sure. <laughs> well, he's a, if, if he wants to shake my hand, I don't think I'd have much choice because he's a much bigger chap than I am. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. There's also an <laughs> album called Honking on Bobo, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not in my collection, strangely enough. So, yeah. Yeah. That's referring to something very different, but we'll move, oh. we'll move on from that. Okay, good. Where can everyone find you online? <laughs> you can find Mysteries and Monsters on all podcast applications and also mysteriesandmonsters.com is the website and also Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms, including YouTube. Brilliant. And uh, we had a listener reach out. I don't know if they got in touch with you, but uh, they were asking, you know, if they happen to be in the area, is Paul free to have a drink? Can, we, can they send him an email and ask? Paul? If they're buying. <laughs> there you go so yeah get if you want to, if you're in paul's neck of the woods if you're in around sheffield you want to meet you want to meet up shoot us a message and we'll we'll see if we can work that out with paul's schedule it's the greenest city in england the, there it's the most everything city in england this is a, this is a very northern thing isn't it <laughs> yeah well we're, all, we're we're celebrating because we um 
we had one of the afterlife benches put up in one of, in my local park. You know the Ricky Gervais show on Netflix. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So they they in the UK they've been and put um, suicide prevention benches in parks around the UK with a QR code that you can scan on to get assistance if you're having a, a mental health crisis or you just need to talk to somebody about things. And uh, it was it was it was in the park for three hours before somebody nicked it, um, <laughs> which is a bit odd because it's not that kind of park. Shall we right. say? I know I was mentioning earlier it's full of hipsters letting off fireworks at midnight in summer, but they're not usually stealing stuff. Um, so yeah, somebody somebody nicked it. So thankfully this week it's been replaced um, with a sturdier security system. Um, oh, but it's on a beautiful beautiful top of the park, and it just you look out all across Sheffield. So uh, I'm going to go visit that as well this weekend. Oh, very cool. Well, like I said, if you want to, if you want to visit the park, maybe we won't say visit the park bench with Paul. That sounds, <laughs> sounds a little too cottagey. Um, <laughs> Meet me back swings at four o'clock. <laughs> That's right. But yeah, Bring sweets. we're always open to meeting with listeners. If we can make it work with our <laughs> schedules, shoot us a message, go story guys, gmail.com or uh, that's probably the best way to do it. You can send us a DM on Instagram, but I get a lot of them. So I don't check them all as frequently as I could email is the way to make sure I see something. And that's uh, that's the best way to do that. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as largely the truth. You can also find my podcast, largely the truth with Brennan store on podcast platforms everywhere. And again, that's a non-paranormal chat show. It's just me talking to artists, musicians, authors, anyone who catches my eye and, uh, happens to seem like they would be willing to chat. And most recently, I spoke to John Adams and Toby Poser, who represent one half of Wonder Wheel Productions, and they are the fine folks behind movies like The Deeper You Dig and the uh, smash hit on Shudder right now, Hellbender, which is a fantastic independent horror film. It's got a cast of like five people. They shot it during COVID because, uh, again, it's just a, it's a parents and their two daughters. So they traveled across the country in a trailer, shot wherever they felt looked cool, and that's how they spent the pandemic, which... Is a hell of a lot better than, you know, me being shit terrified in my apartment. So <laughs> very kind people, very interesting people. And you can check that out again on podcast platforms everywhere. As I said at the top of the show, we love our patrons. We value you guys like fucking crazy. And if you want to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghost story guys for as little as $1 a month, you get access to an ad free feed. And from there you get access to all kinds of bonus shows. We have weekly shows like Book of the Dead and Host Adventures. There are monthly shows like me and Paul. There's uh, Sunken Library, which is usually bi-monthly. All kinds of cool stuff. There is probably 100 hours plus of recorded material stashed away in the Patreon now. And that can be yours for as little as $5 a month. Again, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash large. Nope. You can patreon.com slash largely the truth. You can support the other show for two bucks a month. But that's all we're talking about here. Patreon.com slash ghost story guys. And like we said, if you want to get in touch, we'd love hearing from you. Ghost story guys, gmail.com is a place to send it. We're also on Instagram as the ghost story guys. We have a subreddit at r slash ghost story guys podcast. And we're also on Twitter and Facebook as ghost story guys. But if you've got a story to share, best place to send it is the email ghost story guys at gmail.com. Or if you don't feel like typing, you can always call the ghost line. There's something strange in your neighborhood. We're gonna call Ghost Line. Call one triple eight five eight eight.
Thanks as always to Amber Pease for her ghost line jingle. Again, that number is one 588 6920 Paul, so coming up, you're going to be a panelist on the Fortean Film Festival. That's in mm-hmm. September. Yes. You have an essay being included in a new ebook. Yes. Uh, uh, that's called uh, What the World Cup Means to Me. Yes. Um, a bit of a blast from the past. I wrote it 12 years ago when, I'm, uh, when I was dabbling in the world of football journalism for an American site many years ago. And um, they very kindly sent me an email the other day saying uh, to celebrate Canada's qualification for the World Cup. Ooh. They were, <laughs> go Canada. Uh, they were uh, re-releasing it, um, which I was extremely humbled. Um, even more so when I see the, uh, the quality, quality of the journalists and uh, football reporters that are included in it, because there are some rather famous people involved in this and, and a couple of my favorite commentators. So it's um, something I'd, I'm near, near enough forgotten about. So uh, I wrote an essay about my first World Cup final, aged five, sat on my mum's knee in the haunted house, strangely enough, watching that game. Amazing. And you can find a link to that on our Facebook page. I've put up a post. It's a free ebook. If you want to read it, you just got to put in your name, email address, and uh, yeah, you'll get a link to download it. And Paul's essay is right at the front where it belongs by God. So (laughs) again, that's, uh, you'll find a link to that on the Facebook page. And yeah, nothing new for me. I'm going to be on a show coming up. I'm doing an interview on Monday. I'll mention when when it finally goes up, I'll mention it. But uh, apart from that, and largely the truth, nothing terribly, well, I mean, of course, I've got that video game, but I don't know when that's going to be out. And I'm going to see how my performance looks in the game before I tell anyone what it is. (laughs) Hey, you've got a book to rewrite. Of course, and A Strange Little Place, which is no longer subtitled The Haunting and Unexplained Events of One Small Town. It is just A Strange Little Place. That is being rewritten and published through Beyond the Fray. And so that will be out, we're hoping in the fall. Uh, I have to, you know, obviously get my shit together and get working on it. But uh, yeah. Oh, and our audio drama trilogy is coming together nicely. We've got some casting already done. Uh, I've got some two of the three composers locked in and music is starting to happen. The two composers we have locked so far are Faustbot. He'll be scoring one of the segments. And Jerry Smith, who is a Los Angeles-based composer who performs as Rainy Days for Ghosts, he will be scoring another. And the third one is yet to be determined. I've got someone, but Scheduling may be an issue, so when that finally happens, we'll announce that. But very excited. It's uh, all coming together. It's going to be an incredible amount of work, but it looks pretty cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing that with everybody. And I think that's it for news. So I'll just say, if you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, we just launched a sweet new design based on the work of Mike Harmon. It's a haunted house-themed design, and you can find that at ghoststoryguys.com. Follow the links there to our Public store. And that is a Public exclusive design. So again, that's uh, ghoststoryguys.com. Follow the links to our Public store. If you like the show, don't forget to tell your friends. We really want to grow the show this year and word of mouth is the best way to do it. So if you like what we do and you think you know someone else who might appreciate it, let them know. Also rate and review the show wherever you can. That would also be very much appreciated. We had a lovely review last week and uh, we, we always see them. So thank you so, so much to everyone who does that. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Our story's theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you get your music. Remember, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. And I guess that's going to do it. Well, we'll be back in two weeks. But until then... 
into the darkness we go. So Darren Emerson was part of Underworld, but left? Yeah. It's very old that their quality nosedived. Weird. They've basically been making the same album ever since for 25 years, and it's oh, rather, yeah. rather poor to see. Lero, pretend like I know lots about music, okay? <laughs> well, it was quite funny. The other week we went out and I bumped into a, a friend and her husband. Well, he, he, I've, I've got to know him. He's a decent lad. He's a mad football fan, but he's also really interested in conspiracies and stuff. So right. it was very weird having a conversation talking about football inter intermingled with like ancient aliens and Eric von <laughs> Banneken. And uh, oh, by the way, you're, you're, you you could do with signing a striker. Oh yeah, what about alien abduction? That's yeah, yeah. Hashtag not all ghosts. <laughs> My recording, yes. Next up is the grave face. That's me, right? Yes. Glad someone's paying attention. And rented a caravan in a local. <laughs> Singing it there. Caravan. <clears throat> Caravan in the north of France. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Bring me your spiritual caravan. <laughs> there we go. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Nick, she's got this thing where she always assumes people have some kind of like face disease or like if they have a particularly unique face, she's like, oh, they've got some kind of condition. And she's convinced he's got some kind of condition just because he's got such unusual like facial structure. So I just kept started calling him. We started with bone face and then it became boner face. And so it, it, we watched the entirety of X-Files and I was just, everything was like, yeah, boner face. There's boner face. Boner face has returned. So now whenever I see Brian Thompson, anything, I, I think, no, there goes boner face. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brian Thompson. I'm actually a fan. I actually think I saw Lance Henriksen the other day. He's sitting in a coffee shop, him and, a, him and an older woman. I'm certain it was him. I, I didn't want to get, you know, be weird. So I just kind of kept my distance, but I'm, I'm reasonably sure. I'm just looking at Brian Thompson's filmography here. He was in uh, Rage and Honor with Cynthia Rothrock. Oh, wow. Nightwish, which I've never heard of. The original Fright Night. Uh, oh, no, you're so... What? There you go. Is yeah. he in Fright, Fright Night? Fright Night Part 2. I was going to say, the Fright second one, two. definitely, the, it's the vampire from the first one's sister. He's one of the main baddies. Oh, okay. Anyways, okay. <clears throat> this is not the Brian Thompson podcast. <laughs> not today. Laro, if you're still listening, I'm so sorry. Ha, 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 ha.